Hello, thanks for checking out Covenant's podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. So I just want to take you all in, love you all, and this has been the joy of my life that you've opened up your hearts to me to be a servant of the word. Um, something I began when I started trying to learn the Greek language in college. That's what I wanted to be, but that doesn't happen unless, to be a servant of the word doesn't happen unless people open up their hearts to receive that word. So I love you all. I'm thankful for you all. It is a privilege and what a joy it's been to be part of this unfolding story. Thank you so much. And I, I wanted to say like one of the great, maybe one of my greatest abilities uh, that I will take some glory for um, is that I hire really good people. Our staff is awesome. And uh, I just wanna say like, I, they are so, and I've left you a tremendous resource. They are so united down to their toes, not only in terms of the word of God, but how, how ministry is to be delivered and the proportion and beauty of that ministry. And I'm so grateful for them that for the older ones, like, like Mary and Bruce, and I, I want them to choose a really good retirement center so I can go play shuffleboard with them. And uh, the younger ones are all in my will, but I don't get too excited. I don't have a lot of money to give you, but I mean, I love them. And the, the shenanigans will continue uh, and, and may even get wilder, uh, but I'm, I'm so grateful. And I just want you to know that you could not be in a better position uh, for unity and ministry moving forward. Uh, and uh, we're looking at a text that really talks about the heart and soul of ministry. Uh, it's really what has always been my North Star of aspiration. Um, for everything that the church does, for every message that I've preached in 18 years. And that is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 2 to a church he loved saying, I desire to know nothing while among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men or the power of men, but on the spirit of God. Christ and him crucified. And that really is, that's a description of what covenant church is. We will do everything to make ministry accessible, but one thing we will not do is we will not remove the offense or scandal of the cross. And so everything we do, and that requires you as volunteers and servants, but from the moment a car drives into the parking lot uh, to when they come, and I know we're all, we all wish we could get that cafe back and it will come, I'm sure, in due time. But from the welcome in the cafe, the vibe, from uh, even greater commitment, the the vibe and feel and the content, the rich content and mission of our children's ministry, but from the handoff of that little infant, the first time a couple comes and hands it off, the, the safety, the thoughtfulness, we will do everything so that they are not offended there so that I can offend them here. <laughs> and then we'll send them out with some coffee and, and, and a good vibe so they'll come back for another week of offending until that offending results in something beautiful arriving in their life and that is Christ crucified but then received as Christ in you, the Lord of glory. So I wanna read this text because it really is the anchor of what every church must be and it is the source of the church that God built here. And I don't mean the building, I mean the people are the church, you are the church, and God so increased you that you needed a bigger facility tool to use, praise God. So we'll read this passage and then I wanna break it down for what it means for ministry uh, now and going forth and forever. Verse 18, 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray again. Lord, <clears throat> we invite you, Holy Spirit, into the very midst of this message. All the emotions, all the content, everything you want to get through, Lord, have your way. Take away obstacles in me, take away obstacles in the hearing so that this might be spiritually appraised and touched by you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says he determined to know nothing while in Corinth. I want you to know this is not a uh, kind of ministry philosophy switch for him saying, well, this is what the Corinthians need. This was Paul's constant. This was what Paul always did his aim was to exalt and to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And I would just say to you, it is the only way that you and I can understand anything that's in the Bible. If you separate or try to rest any subject matter or anything in your life from understanding it through the lens of the cross of Christ, you've not understood it properly. And so he anchors everything in this throughout his, his entire ministry and he begins to address uh, this as the way that Christ is exalted. And he's dealing, first of all, with a, with a practical issue that this church had. 
This church had a great amount of diversity in it, but that diversity was starting to fragment into divisiveness. And Paul here speaks of Christ crucified as a way to heal the scandal of human divisiveness. And we're living at a time and in a world where party spirits, tribal spirits, you know, the cancel culture that, uh, you know, pits everybody against each other, no matter what their viewpoint and such are, uh, every, all of that is on display. And it is sad in the world, but it's a scandal in the church. Here's why it's a scandal in the church. Because Christ crucified is the only reason any of us got into this body. And if we allow human distinctions, even disagreements, different points of view, worldly polarizations to compromise the unity that we have because it required the Messiah to be murdered on our behalf, then we are actually sawing off the limb that we are resting our weight upon because if it weren't for Christ crucified, we couldn't actually be in this body. And that is, that is something so important because yes, when there are staff transitions and pastoral transitions, it can open up a window of vulnerability for disunity. And that would be such a, not only tragedy, and, and, but it would be a scandal because it would denigrate the work of Christ, which was necessary to bring us in here. Now, I use that word murdered Messiah. I remember one time, it was after a Saturday service, Mary came to me and said, hey, somebody said murdered Messiah. This is how good she is as a staff partner. She's, she didn't reveal who said it, but they said, you know, they, they didn't like that. Stumbled over it, caused him a problem. I forget exactly. But I went home and thought about it, prayed about it. And I thought, you know, as is sometimes the case, I said, well, I need to double down on that actually. <laughs> because it was state-sponsored execution of the most torturous kind. I mean, there has been no murder, there has been no dismemberment of a human being that is more gruesomely awful than what Jesus Christ experienced. And while, yes, he was in full control laying his life down, no one takes it from him, but it was at the hand of wicked and evil men, the Bible says, that he was put to death. That was a murder, it was gruesome, it was horrible. We dare not clean that up as the cost of our admission to the church. Because if we do, we will forget the sacred price that Christ effected to unite us as sinners to a holy God. And if we somehow diminish that sacrifice in all of its hideous gruesomeness, we will trivialize it. We need to magnify what really would take an eternity to survey. And, and it preserves us. Look, Jesus Christ did not suffer on the cross so that on the other side of it, we could fight over our doctrinal positions. Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the key absolute that puts all of the convictions in line, but it especially puts the preferences and the things that generally can put people sideways from each other. When you were publicly crucified in the ancient world, you were serving as a kind of billboard for the oppressing power that you were the lowest of the low, unable to protect your eyes from being plucked out by carrion birds and, and, and so many gruesome effects of this, but it was meant to stamp out the humanity of the person. And the Christian faith is to take a believing leap into the sufficiency of what Christ suffered so that you can experience the arms of God around you. 
And so this is a great basis for unity, and it is the proclamation of the church. Now, in all 18 years, I'd say I've, I've known this was the heart of Christian ministry, and it, it's, it's good that I knew that and had some good modeling and instructors because it spared you from what often goes on in church, and that is it spared you from receiving messages from me like five ways that you can be a winning parent to your kids or 10 ways to free your finances so that you can get more out of your dollar or three ways that you can put on new habits or, hey, let's all do the Daniel diet together and we'll keep track and we'll have accountability charts and do those kind of things. Those things are a distortion of the Bible when they are divorced from the lens of Christ crucified. And here is why they're actually very, very dangerous. Because if I give you a little pep talk on how to be a better parent to your kids and you are actually better for a week, the danger of that trap is that you will start to congratulate yourself as you have it together. You are the great parent or you shed 10 pounds or you did whatever that little technique and and message is so that you feel better about yourself and you walk around in pride. Or more likely, and this is how I experience it, You hang on for a little while and then you fail and it leads into a sense of condemnation and shame and then you've got to either lie to other people or lie to yourself or walk around with a sense that somehow you just are not living up to what you need to live up to to please God. Those kind of messages are not, they do not carry divine authority and they are not why the Bible is written. Jesus said that All of the scriptures are written to point to him, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures basically to find honor from between each other, but they all point to me that you can know me. Jesus said the scriptures, sacred and inspired as they are, are a means to an end, and he is the blessed end. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it, prince of preachers who did this as well as anybody I know in preaching history. Um, He said, In England, there's a network of roads. There are many different roads and they can lead you through beautiful hillsides and beautiful vistas to enjoy the beauty of England. But he says every single one of those networks of of roads, ultimately you can find a way to get to the city of London. All of them, you can have any starting point. We know this on our Google Maps, right? You can pick the starting point and you can pick whatever the ending point is and you can find a way to whatever your ending point is, Washington, D.C., wherever it is you want to go, all of the roads will eventually get connected to lead you to that one focal point. Well, in the Bible, it is more intentional and purposeful. There is a network of centuries of authors. There are genres. There is poetry and there is allegory and there is history and there is wisdom literature and there's apocalyptic literature and all this all these different kinds of literature and all these different kind of authors and all these different topics that the bible addresses and god wants us to engage on those to- those topics and those genres but every single one of them is designed to get us not to london but to jesus because it's only in him that any of those things mean anything. So don't understand this as saying, oh, well, Paul just, he went and just talked about salvation and a vertical relationship with God. No, 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 you read Paul. He's gonna read Corinthians. He's, he's talking about, you know, people at odds with each other in lawsuits. He's talking about sexual morality. He's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about all kinds of topics, but he's bringing them all into a focal point in Jesus Christ. And this is so important. 
So important for the church to stay on track. You cannot, I cannot understand a single verse of scripture unless it leads me to an encounter with Jesus Christ and he fills it and informs it. Not to the idea of Christ, but to a real living encounter with the Christ who is alive and who loves you and who has something to impart of himself to you. So important. Secondly, Paul writes that he, he preaches Christ crucified. He's fixated on this. He has a one-track mind because he wants to upend all other human expectations. Paul here is trying to get a divided church to see that their divisions are denying their beginnings. That's a very dangerous position to be in when your divisions deny the message that you exist, that got you in and that you exist to proclaim to others. But, but he's also showing that anything in them that makes them think they are superior, and in this case, wisdom or power, those are the two things. Those are the two things then, they're the two things now. They'll always be the two things, superior wisdom or superior power in all the other competing philosophies and religions. And Paul here is showing that Christ is God's wisdom and Christ is the power of God. He is seeking to undermine, he's seeking as it were, to look at the things that people really care about that make them feel like they're superior to each other and he is basically putting loads of TNT and dynamite underneath those things and he is detonating it in the cross but, so that Christ is supreme and all those other things are pushed aside. And so here's the reality of Christianity. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a worldview, though it contains the lens through Christ that we can look at others and all things, but it's not a philosophy, it's not even a morality. It's not God's goal isn't to get people to sin a little less. It's not the goal of Christianity. It's not crowd control. It's not trying to bring more civility into a fallen world. It's not trying to do any of those things. Those are, the, those are places of wisdom, but you see, if you, if you have a wisdom religion, and you can have a lot of assets in a wisdom religion or a philosophy, you can take the wisdom, apply it, and you can ditch the sage, you can ditch the teacher, you can get rid of them, you just, you just apply what the principles are. Uh, I had an instructor in college who was a Muslim, he was a Sufi Muslim, and as we got into it, we saw you know, some noted flaws in the character of Muhammad, and I remember him saying, oh, well, you don't have to pay attention to Muhammad, he is just a mouthpiece that points to Allah. But Jesus is both the mouthpiece that points to God and he also is the God to whom all of the other prophets point to. You can't ditch Jesus. Jesus is not just something, okay, well, I'll apply his principles, but I won't, I won't receive him. I've heard people say that, right? I'll say, well, I, I wanna try the morality, I wanna try the principles, but Jesus refuses that because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. He is all of those things. You can't edge him out with the content of what he says. But Buddha said, I care very little if anyone remembers me, just follow my philosophy. And I'm not knocking some good things that Buddha had to say, by the way. But, but that shows that Buddha never claimed to be the centerpiece of Buddhism. Jesus claims to be the absolute centerpiece of Christianity. Christ is Christianity. Christ is Christianity. Other teachings, you can ignore the teacher and accept the teachings, but no, no, no. And so that's why 
Christianity is good news because it's the event of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection that the apostles announced to the world as good news, as a proclamation that saves. They, they were not giving people good advice to clean up their lives. They were telling people, no, Christ has come and this changes everything. So it's not a philosophy, it's not a morality, it is, it is what changes and reconfigures the human heart. The, the best book on the crucifixion of Christ is written by Fleming Rutledge. She is an amazing thinker and preacher and theologian. And I wanna just share an extended section of what she says about the crucifixion. It is profound. It will lift you, in a sense, to a deeper insight. And I just, I commend that book called The Crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge. And she writes this, she says, no one understands what exactly is meant when the Bible says God made Christ to be sin. How could the son of God be sin? But Paul, when he says this, 2 Corinthians 5, understands sin not as an accumulation of misdeeds, but as a power with a death grip on the whole human race. And it certainly sounds as though Jesus somehow was overtaken by the dread power of sin or was somehow assimilated to sin or was held by sin in extremis, imprisoned by sin in some way that was commensurate with sin's annihilating intentions. And so we find in Paul, he sets Jesus' sinlessness. He knew no sin over against God saying, he made him to be sin. He knew no sin. He made him to be sin. And he brings those two phrases, he knew no sin, he made him to be sin, into the closest proximity to heighten the shock of what is being said. Note that Paul does not merely say, Jesus never sinned, which is true. Or Jesus did not commit sin, also true. But for Paul, sin is not something that we commit, it is a power that holds you and me helplessly in its thrall. And through crucifixion, Jesus shows that his death enters into sin's power. No other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the extremity of your condition and my condition. Jesus was condemned. He was scourged mercilessly. He was tied to a pole, exposing his back and flesh. He was rendered helpless and powerless. His arms were stretched almost out of their sockets. His wrists and ankles were pierced with nails thicker than my fingers. He was pinned like an insect onto the planks. He was given the death of a slave. He was put in the place where he was self-asphyxiating, suffocating, just like the weight of Jesus' own body hanging there with the nails, made every exhale an effort and worked to suffocate Jesus by his own weight. Jesus took sin into himself and became his own enemy. And just as his very own body turned against him on the cross, smothering and killing him so that his human nature absorbed the curse of the law, the sentence that deals death to all of us, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, reconciling you and me if we will have it. God, in the person of his son, put himself voluntarily and deliberately in the place of the greatest accursedness and godlessness for us, forsaken for us, but forsaken in love for us and confident that this was the way that he could bring us out of our bondage to sin as the power that brings misery to us. Yeah, it's amazing, our God. The answer to the power that the world wants is seen in the weakness of God, overcoming that power. The answer to the wisdom of the world is in the foolishness of the cross. 
First Corinthians 3 says, if any of you think that you're wise, let him become a fool in order that he may become wise. If any of you think that you were strong, let you see Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, this was what he lived to proclaim. And so he came in in his own weakness that he might proclaim how Jesus' weakness on the cross overcame all the human power systems. This is what the world through its wisdom did not know God. Do you see through the cross, Jesus is turning all the power structures of the world that make all the powerful, all the well healed, all the people who are in on the inside forever. And he turns it upside down through the cross. Only in weakness did God overpower his enemies with forgiveness. And only in foolishness did God refute the world's wisdom. And I have been so privileged to see it time and time and time again proclaim the cross of Christ. Someone asked me, what are your, some of your most joyous memories? Well, there's way too many. Some of the most joyous is when I've actually like seen. I've been engaged with an individual who's been attending here. They're not yet a believer in Christ. They're wrestling against it. Doesn't make sense. All kinds of foreign freight is occupying their mind about who God is. I'm telling them, yeah, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. This is the God I believe in. Look to Jesus and I see them in times where I've seen someone like sitting in the second row on a Christmas Eve and I see Jesus Christ arrive in their life because the proclamation of the gospel is joined with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And it is such a resource to covenant that every single one of our elders, every single one of our leaders believes that down to their toes. That gives such unity and such resource and focus to continue that future and to continue to write those stories together as a body. And that builds that beautiful story that is that is. That is the reason, that is the basis of Christian unity. And so don't ever cheapen that by amplifying other differences. That's why we can disagree and they can always have discussions about priorities and proportions and necessities. And you can disagree without drawing blood. And, and, and you, can, you can labor for what will bring Christ most fully formed in everything he has in his word. And here's the final point. Christ crucified builds a beauty that only the Spirit of God can build. It builds a beauty that only the Spirit of God can build. You see, Christ crucified is the lens through which the messenger has to pass. It humbles the messenger. Every messenger. And so every messenger, Paul said, what is Paul or Peter or Cephas, or he calls him, or Apollos? These are like the greats. Like, I mean, yeah, Apollos had to be instructed by Priscilla to get his theology right, but he was a great teacher in the church, okay? So all these people are, are, are greats. And he says, what are they? They says, they're simply servants through whom you believed. And he says, he says ultimately in Corinthians, he says, they're nothings. They're nothing except servants through whom you believed. Uh, yeah, I love the pastoral bond that exists I love that in, in the last couple of weeks, even people from my congregation in Maryland, I was away 18 years, like they, there's still a bond there, like sending me messages, you know, what's going on, how are you doing, all that, like that still continues, that's awesome. But it's not ultimate, it doesn't define you, it should never be a point of division or distinction between believers, that's such a abuse of that. Uh, and, and so Paul here is, 
is saying, I want your community to be built on this beauty. And so the best servant of God is just a nobody trying to tell anybody about somebody that can save everybody, right? And that's who you are. You're just a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about the one somebody who can save anybody. That's who you are. And it should flatten us in a way that's beautiful. You know, one thing that the world and Christians kind of agree on about evangelism is that it makes us uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable sharing Christ. They're uncomfortable that we're going to drop Christ on them in some awkward way. And, and here's the solution to that in part, that this understanding builds a beauty into the messenger, a beauty of, of, of humility that will allow the message to be transmitted without any kind of, I have it all together, you need to get in the club. And, and you know what? If the cross of Christ doesn't do it for you, and that should be sufficient alone, Paul adds this other doctrine that's often neglected and it's not even understood here, but it's called the doctrine of sovereign election. And, and here he says, God chose, you know, the things that are weak, you, <laughs> the things that are powerless. Um, and it says, it is because of him that you were in Christ Jesus. And so you can't even say, hey, the reason I figured out the cross is, well, you know, my mom said I always did have a spiritual side, you know, um, and, and begin to pat yourself on the back. He says, nope, you didn't figure this out for yourself. It is because of him that you ever even are in Christ Jesus because he had to choose you. And that's an amazing act of grace that he would have done that. And so it humbles the messenger. <laughs> And I love the way Paul describes himself. You know, this can, evangelism and, and understanding who Jesus is can make you go around and like demand of people like they, that they pay attention and that they get themselves oriented toward Jesus Christ in a, in a spirit that actually belies the content of the message. And here's how Paul described himself. He didn't say, I am now commissioned by God and I demand that you repent. I demand that you listen. I demand that you pay attention. He says, no, he says, I'm not a demander. We don't need more demanders, especially in the world we live in, right? Running around telling people, you know, they're angry, they want other people to shape up, they're, they're demanding that other people get in line, they're demanding that other people recognize what they owe. They turn into pushy demanders. Paul says, I'm not a demander because of the gospel. He says, I am a debtor. And he says, I'm a debtor to all people, Jews, Greeks, and, and barbarians. He says, uh, I'm a debtor. Uh, I owe other people because look, if, the, if in the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit can turn me from a non-believer into a believer, he can actually do that to anybody. I think that's one of the biggest areas of, of our need for confidence in the gospel is that there is no one you know of who is a non-believer right now who cannot be one to Christ because if it could happen to you and me, it can happen to anybody, right? The likes of us. And so it gives us a confidence without a brashness. It gives us a humility and it gets rid of the swagger and it gives us a sweetness and a kindness and it gives us, it gives us a kindness as we communicate this and it gives us a, one of the things I hope for covenant is that it, it continues to build upon what I hope is, is present in our community that covenant is a kind place. It is a gracious community to go and process the claims of who God is and figure it out and sort it out, that we are a place filled with kindness. And so whatever topic we take up, 
It's through the lens of God's kindness in Christ, whether it's how we spend our resources or talk to our children or deal with sexual temptation. We're reading this through the lens of the gospel, through the crucifixion of Christ. Whether it's in the necessary task that the church must have leadership and and enunciate clearly the task for racial reconciliation, it's done in kindness. It's done with hope both for the oppressors and the oppressed. Yeah, not just the oppressed, also the oppressors. Because the same need is there for both to be rescued by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The cross is never absent, but under the shadow of the cross, all topics are engaged that the Bible engages, but demonstrating the kindness and love of God. I just want to say there's a subtle danger here that should be obvious. If we speak of the cross of Christ, we sometimes can can stumble and think of it as, well, that's the cause of the love of the Father. The reason the Father loves me is, you know, Jesus wrung it out of his reluctant, miserly heart. But it's the love of the Father that is actually the cause of the cross. Romans says this so well. It says, when we were yet helpless, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, God demonstrates his love. The cross says, your father loves you. Oh, there's a fatherhood crisis in our world. But this is part of the message of the church to say, there is a heavenly father and he loves you. And that love is behind the cross and apart from it. Apart before Jesus ever died on the cross, the father loved you. The Father didn't need a cross to have love in his heart for you. But the cross satisfied the justice of God and the righteousness of God and paid the price for sin. It was inspired by the Father. It was gladly taken up by the Son and the Spirit overflows because he he is a spirit whose heart is restless until the love of the Father rests upon all the broken image bearers who he desires to make part of the many sons and daughters who are brought into the family of God. That's what Christ crucified as a ministry is. That's what's characterized, that's what's built the church that lives in the facility that's here. That's what builds any church. That's here in abundance and our leaders and staff and your lives. And unleashed in power and health, that's what allows the next narrative to build on that and be better than the, next, than the past narrative and to continue and to continue. But it's Christ crucified. It heals human divisions. It displaces all the other human categories in quest for wisdom. And it makes the church a place of beauty, kindness, attractiveness so that people can sense Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I would pray if there are any here who have never given themselves to Christ, who've been under that power of sin and living by their own wisdom, Lord, you would break into their lives right now. Don't let them leave this place without it. And Lord, freshly infect us with that power of Christ crucified. We pray that this place would always be devoted to that. Protect the unity of this place. Protect it in whatever vulnerabilities are there and perfect it. This might be a time, Lord, of your even greater outpouring. Lead this precious church through that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.